If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you open up to the book of Matthew. It is the first book in the New Testament, and we're going to look beginning at chapter 1, and we'll kind of branch off from there as well. Um, I want to just kind of call your attention to something, um, and Sean may talk about it towards the end as well with the announcements, but with the rise of uh, people in our community experiencing the coronavirus, we're going to do something a little bit different uh, this next Sunday. Uh, instead of being in-house, we're all going to be online. And here's the reason behind that. Um, as things are getting, beginning to increase in our community with that, we know that this week being Christmas, people are going to be around their extended family, they're going to be around the co-workers at their parties and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, if we hold off until January 3rd, that will give us some time to at least discover whether or not you pick something up in all of your Christmas traveling. And so we, we don't want to have something come back and then immediately share that with others. So we still want to protect uh, the household of faith here, and yet we also want to provide for you opportunities to worship. And so next Sunday, the 27th, uh, will be online only. And so those of you who are online right now, we're joining you. That's what we're doing. All right, so if you could... Um, <clears throat> Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll start. But I'm not sure if, if many of you have seen this film or not. Uh, it's, it's supposed to be a very hilarious film, a funny film. Um, it's basically, I'll lay out for you the, the summary of the plot and the characters. Um, the story is about an eight-year-old boy, Kevin McAllister. Yeah. The, some of you have seen this movie, I'm sure. All right. Well, Kevin, he lives with his... They're not poor. Matter of fact, they're rather, rather wealthy family in the suburbs of Chicago in a very large house. And, and as they're there, this entire family at Christmas time is preparing to go on a family vacation. Now, the family isn't just Kevin and his household. It's the cousins, the aunts and uncles, and all that extended family. They're all taking a trip to Europe for the Christmas season. Well, as, as you know, eight-year-olds can sometimes be a little rambunctious and get out there and get under the feet of everybody else. Well, Kevin was doing his best to do that. And so as troublesome a child as he is, and at that age eight that's really not quite cute anymore, but yet not mature enough, he was really just being moved around and, and into everything. So finally, his mother sends him off to his bedroom uh, and his bedroom isn't just anywhere, it's up in the attic of the house. That where he cannot be seen or heard. You know, perfect place for an eight-year-old boy who's getting into everybody's way. And so as his mother is scolding him and telling him to go up there, he then responds to her and he tells her that he hates her and that he wishes he never had to see the family ever again. As night goes by, the morning rises and... Everybody seems to have overslept. So it is hustle and bustle, scurry and move about as quickly as they can to get out of the house and out onto the roads and into the airport so they don't miss their flight to Europe for this wonderful family vacation. Obviously, kind of like Mary and Joseph at one point thought that Jesus was with the other family, uh, his family thought that Kevin was as well with some of the other cousins or something. Turns out Kevin did not wake up. He's still upstairs in the attic, his bedroom, sound asleep. Finally, when Kevin does wake up, to his surprise and amazement, it seems like his wish has come true. 
The family is gone. They, they, God has answered his prayers, and they have disappeared. And now he can do whatever he wants. I mean, this is the life for Kevin. As this, this, this day is dawn for him, he realizes that he is really alone. He is home alone. And now he can eat whatever junk food he wants to eat. He can snoop in his big brother's bedroom and find out information. He can do anything he wants to do. And it's all his. And what a wonderful experience he's going to have because now he's got this to himself. To add a little more excitement into the movie, in the neighborhood there is uh, Harry and Marv uh, have decided that they're going to begin to explore some of these houses that are vacated for vacations and they start to rob these houses. They have targeted Kevin's house next. Kevin realizes what's happening, so he begins to set booby trap after booby trap to get these guys, and eventually he's able to capture them, and the story is, you know, he's won, and and they're lost, and they're going off. But in the midst of all that he's celebrating, Kevin comes to a realization being home alone isn't always the best. And to his surprise and amazement again, he realizes he's having feelings about being lonely and nobody is there. And so he's sorry that he even ever wished that they would be gone. Have you ever felt lonely? Have you ever felt like you are home alone? Now, some of you may be home alone. Because that's it. It's just you at the home. But being alone is more than just that. Sometimes it goes even deeper to that. Lee Strobel, in his book, God's Outrageous Claims, he said that people today will admit to just about anything in life. They'll admit to drugs, they'll admit to divorce, alcoholism, but there's one admission that people are loath to admit doesn't matter who they are, whether they're a star on television or whether they repair the television. The one thing that people will not do because of embarrassment is to admit that they are sometimes lonely. No one wants to let others know that they, they have these feelings, that they feel this loneliness. And loneliness, Strobel says, is, is such a humiliating malady that it ought to have its own politically correct euphemism. And he suggests rationally or relationally challenged. I mean, he says it ought to have some of its own things, like its own telethon to help promote the idea that everybody's there and and, and other ways to make it safer for people to admit that they've got this loneliness. Because right now, loneliness seems to be a taboo that none of us want to share with anybody else that we feel that way. But loneliness is common. We all experience it in different ways, different times. Everyday experiences for a lot of people. And the feeling of loneliness is compounded, especially at Christmas time. A time when everything should be celebrated, a time when there should be joyous singing and and warmth and, and comfort. But it's at Christmas season when there is this great realization that we are really home alone. However, the feeling of of loneliness is going to be exacerbated by this COVID-19 because now sometimes some people are quarantined. And so in this time right now, there are people really experiencing this loneliness. The feelings of loneliness 
at Christmas is nothing new. Matter of fact, I would imagine that that feeling of loneliness was a part of the very first Christmas to begin with. The Joseph, we often don't talk about him. We talk about Jesus and we talk about Mary. But I want to kind of bring Joseph into play today. And at this point in his life, I think Joseph probably felt the most loneliness of all as things around him were falling apart. So we're going to look at three events in Joseph's life in which he might have experienced this loneliness. The first event takes place in Nazareth, the second in Bethlehem, and the third in Egypt. So if you would, let's, let's go with me as we begin to look at this. Joseph must have felt all alone in Nazareth when he thought that he had been betrayed by the one whom he loved. And we find that in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Imagine how Joseph must have felt when he learned of Mary's pregnancy. He knew it wasn't his. And she's confessed to him, I'm expecting a baby. And she tries to give him some, this far-fetched idea that it's, it's an immaculate conception. It's, it, I, I'm still a virgin. There's no way that this could happen but by God's Holy Spirit upon me. And you've got to understand, he's going, this, this can't be. This can't be. In our culture, dating is a little bit different than it was back then. I mean, in ancient Israel, the dating customs were not like we have here in America. You you don't find somebody that you're attracted to, you ask them out on a date, you spend a few things here, you figure out that you're falling in love, you move in with them, and then you decide to get married. That seems to be the normal thing here in America. But that's not the way it was there. In ancient Israel, what transpired was more of a business transaction than a heart-palpitating love-at-first-sight and marriage. Usually it was arranged by the fathers. And sometimes it was done when they were very little children until they reached the age in which they could be married and then the, the deal was already set. And so we have this period in which they call the betrothal. And Mary and Joseph are in that stage of marriage where they are betrothed to one another. It's kind of an, an that ancient form where it took between six months to a year in which the engagement was there. And unlike our marital engagements today, 
Betrothal was as binding then as if the marriage had already taken place. So they were really married. They just weren't living together yet. So to be released from a betrothal, you had to go through the process of divorce proceedings, just like they would have been married. Well, while very little is known about Joseph and his feelings, we can only imagine how brokenhearted he must have been when he discovered that this young woman whom he is to marry, that's going to be his wife for all his life, she's having a baby. And the thought naturally had to occur to him, she has betrayed me. She's had an affair with somebody else. She's, she's, she's going to have a baby and it's not mine? What is going on? And I'm sure that there must have been gossip that was already starting in their small community in which they lived of Nazareth. Some things never change, do they? Joseph, he determined a course of action in which he was going to take. Now, at this point, he wasn't just dealing with some personal emotions, but now he had to also make a wise decision on how to explain her situation to everybody. The stress of such a decision would have made anyone feel all alone and abandoned because this has got to be his decision. He's got to make it. So here was his dilemma. As a righteous man, that means being one who follows the law, he's, he's, he's just in the things that he does, he then can divorce her according to the law. But does he really want to do that? You see, marrying a woman who was with a child before marriage brought extra concerns about her character and naturally would reflect not only on her, but on him, and ultimately on the entire family. And now he's got to make a decision. So he has two options. Option one, he can accuse Mary of adultery and let her face the consequences on her own. And in this case, a divorce would be granted, but there would be consequences for her. In many countries at that time, the consequences for adultery were considered serious because it was a heinous crime. So if you were in, let's say, Egypt, the woman who was found to be with child that wasn't married, she would have her nose cut off. If you lived in Persia, they would cut both her ears and her nose. But if you lived in Israel, the woman would be stoned to death. And Joseph could wipe his hands from the whole ordeal. The second option is this. He could put Mary away quietly. And in using this option, a divorce would be also granted, but no reason necessarily had to be given. During this time, he could simply just say to her, I divorce you. And it was done. And so Joseph figured that would probably be the best course of action. After all, he was trying to be a righteous man, a just man. And he understood that in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that God says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
At this point, when it appears that Joseph is probably at his lowest point in his life, and he's all alone. This has got to be his decision. And it's here when God steps in and brings a better understanding of what is actually taking place, and he provides a resolution to the situation, which is going to be a third option. And so as Joseph is sleeping, an angel appears to him in a dream and presents to him this explanation as to what is actually taking place, that he ought to take Mary to be his wife, and because she is conceived with a child that is from the Holy Spirit and not from any man. And he awakens and he realizes he's not alone. God is actually with him. And God has been there in this entire time to provide guidance. He now has this third option that he can take Mary immediately and marry her as his wife. And God doesn't abandon Joseph in this hour. And he won't abandon us either. Matter of fact, he promises that to us in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. And it says, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you, and He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Jesus put it this way, as Matthew records for us in Matthew 28, verse 20, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As He talked with His disciples about His going into heaven, He he let them know that He was not going to abandon them or leave them as orphans, that He was actually going to send His Spirit back to be with them that would dwell within them, that they would not be alone, that He would be right there with them. What a uniqueness, His name, Jesus. It means He who saves, but the other name is even more unique. Emmanuel, God with us. Joseph was never alone. And you and I are never alone either because God is with us. Well, the second situation arises in Bethlehem. And Joseph probably experiences again this, it's, it's all on his shoulders and, and, and for him. He's overwhelmed probably by the personal responsibility that's about to take place. So we turn over to the book of Luke, chapter 2, and we're going to read the first seven verses. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see, their journey to Bethlehem was probably something unique. We don't experience like they would have. Joseph and Mary would have had to travel from north to south to Bethlehem over rugged terrain at about 90 miles to 100 miles, depending on the route in which they may have taken. The only area that might have been a little bit easy would have been down along the Jordan River Valley, but still... It's quite hazardous and dangerous, uh, and 
it would not have been an easy trip. Now, now you have to remember as well that Mary is expecting a baby soon. They can't just hop into their car and drive down there in an hour and a half, stay with the family, pay their taxes, get back in the car and head back north. That's not going to happen. Matter of fact, what's going to happen is Joseph and Mary are going to have to travel all this distance and they're going to discover that there are financial pressures that Joseph is going to have to take care of now. Not only paying his tax, but traveling isn't cheap. And especially if it's going to take you more than one day. They've got the cost of travel. But not only that, but to travel itself is going to be difficult because there are no interstate highways. There are no wonderful cars. They're going to have to travel by foot or at best on a donkey. Then Joseph is going to have to provide for Mary and a baby in Bethlehem because by the time they get there, the baby may be born. Now what? We can't travel back to Nazareth. Have to find a place to stay. I'm gonna have to, to to either provide for us while we're there so that we can eat and we can take care of things. I may have to get a job while we're in Bethlehem, Mary. And it's all on his shoulders. And this whole ordeal must have been overwhelming to Joseph, and he was on his own now. The feeling of being alone has had to have crept in at some point. Being thrust into a position of great responsibility can be a lonely experience. Now, you, you top that off with the stress that he must have had because you're going to add the added pressure of being the surrogate father for who? The Son of God. Now, I know that some of us say we've had perfect children. <laughs> but this one was. And we're going to have to, we're going to, have to raise this. I'm going to have to be his dad. How is this going to work? You see where, where the, all that comes into play. It's kind of hard for, for Joseph probably to even begin to fathom. And yet for Joseph, it was reality. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, The Quest for Character, he talks about a PBS program that, that years ago that talked about a library of Congress, and some of the things that are in there. And he relates the story. He says about halfway through that program... Dr. Daniel Borston, the librarian of Congress, brought out a little blue box from a small closet that once held the library's rarities. The label on the box read, Contents of the President's Pockets on the Night of April 14, 1865. Since that was the, the fateful night that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, every viewer's attention was seized. Borston then proceeded to remove the items in the small container and display them on camera. Number one, there was a handkerchief embroidered with A. Lincoln. Two, a country boy's penknife. Three, a spectacles case repaired with string. Four, a purse containing a $5 bill, Confederate money. And five, some old and worn newspaper clippings. Now, the clippings Borson had told them, they contained great deeds and great actions that Abraham Lincoln had done. And one of them actually was a report of a man by the name of John Bright. He was a Britishman, 
uh, and he was responding and talking about Abraham Lincoln. And in that clipping, John Bright said this statement. He said that Abraham Lincoln is one of the greatest men of all time. Now, we understand that from our day, don't we? We can look back in hindsight and we can say, Abraham Lincoln was a great man. Look at the things that he has done. He accomplished and he surrendered himself even to do that. We look back and we say, yes, what a great man he was. But there was a little bit of a contrary opinion in his day and age. Abraham Lincoln was not considered by many people to be a great man. Matter of fact, he wasn't liked by millions. They hated him, and they wanted to get rid of him. And they blamed him for all the agony and the suffering and the turmoil that the Civil War was causing this nation. Abraham Lincoln, to them, was not a great man. And so there's something that's kind of touching and pathetic about this man having to keep newspaper clippings in his pocket that talk about the wonderful things he has done and how good and great a man he is. When we think about Abraham Lincoln, we would think that at that season of his life, he was probably the loneliest man in the world. The decision and the fate of millions of people laid upon his shoulders. And in the White House, truly he was home alone. Joseph's responsibilities may seem to outweigh his ability, but then again, in this situation he finds himself, Joseph, he wasn't alone. In fact, he had Emmanuel there. Not only was God watching over him, but he had become the adopted father of a son that indeed was truly special. When Jesus was born, shepherds came in from out of the fields because they had been told by this host of angelic beings that lit up the sky that Jesus was born there in this lowly manger and they had come in to worship him. Mary couldn't even have a moment of peace and quiet with Joseph at that time because these shepherds are knocking on the door. And it seems like the message is spread everywhere because those shepherds, they couldn't keep it quiet. Eventually, some magi, some of these wealthy wise men from the east, they showed up and they, they fall to their knees and they bow down before Jesus, this baby, and they profess their allegiance to him as king of kings and lord of lords. And they bring with them gifts, the first Christmas gifts, I guess we might say. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Surely Joseph must have understood by now that God was with him the entire time. He wasn't alone. And God is with us as well. It was prophesied that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And even when Jesus was preparing for his final hours, that he would go to the cross and he would surrender himself and give up his life for us knowing that in the days ahead he would die, be buried, rise again, and ascend into heaven, he promised the presence of his Holy Spirit to us so that we would not be alone ever. John records that when he said in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... 
the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The very Spirit of God now coming to dwell and to live within those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus. We're not alone because God is with us. The third place that he may have felt loneliness would have been in Egypt. Egypt. Surely there was a sense of being alone when he had to flee his homeland, when he had to flee Bethlehem and travel to a place he'd never been before. It was just him and Mary and baby Jesus as they're taking off in the middle of the night trying to scurry away so that they are not discovered. They were alone there. Back in Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord... Now that was when the wise men left. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. See, Joseph was under attack by one of the most malicious, most ruthless rulers that this world had known, Herod the Great. If he suspected in the slightest manner that anybody was after his throne, he would put them to death. Family, friend, or foe, it didn't matter. As we discussed last week about Herod, he's just this ruthless, brutal killer. And and he was so deranged in his mind and in his body and the sickness that he had as well. He wasn't about to be usurped by a baby in Bethlehem. So he went after Jesus with everything he had to destroy him. And in his wake, all he left was a trail of destruction, a trail of death. Little baby boys, two years old and younger, in that entire region, every one of them was slaughtered and killed so that somehow he did not miss that baby. Fear can be a debilitating emotion. It can drive us from the right path or even freeze us in our tracks. But you know what? We all have fears. We do, each one of us. Mental health professionals have been chronicling the hundreds of different kinds of fears that people are plagued with in their lives all over the world. Some of them are common, others are very rare, others are logical, and others just seem totally illogical at all. I want to share with you a few of these fears. How about palatophobia? The fear of going bald or having a bald person in your presence, right? Some of you may have that fear. Some of us may have the other fear, which is chinophobia, which is the fear of hairy people, all right? Well, then there's all paphrophobia, the fear of purple. Look at your chairs. (laughs) I'm glad you're all here that you didn't run out. 
There's glossophobia. That's the fear to stand up in front of people and to speak to them. And there are a lot of people who, who are trembling at that. But I think the one that tops them all is phobophobia, which is the fear of being afraid, the fear of fear itself, right? John Ortberg in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, he wrote this. He said, the single command in Scripture that occurs more often than other, than any other, God, God's most frequently repeated instruction is formulated in two words, fear not. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. You can trust me. God is wanting us to understand we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to have any of these fears because God understands and He's right there with us and He's going to walk us through whatever struggle we're going to have to face. We aren't home alone. So He says, fear not. But why does God command us not to fear? I mean, fear does not seem like that's the most serious vice that we could ever have. Matter of fact, there aren't any punishments in the Scripture about having fear. It's not even classified as a sin. And yet God tells us more often than not, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So why does He tell us to stop being afraid more than He tells us anything else? I think my hunch is, is that the reason God says fear not so much is that He wants us to be spared the emotional discomfort that we put on ourselves. In fact, He usually says it to people to get them to respond and do something that would give them even greater fear. You ever ask yourself, why Egypt? Why does, why does the angel tell Joseph, wake up your wife, get the baby, and head out tonight and head to Egypt? Why Egypt? What is there about Egypt that makes it so, so unique for him? I think there are a lot of different reasons. Well, the first one is this. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. In Matthew chapter 2, verse, verse 15, he's, he's answering the prophecy of Hosea 11, 1. So he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt... I called my son. So somehow, Joseph has got to take Jesus to Egypt so he can call him out of Egypt. So it fulfills prophecy. Egypt also is a very safe place for the child and his mother. It put them out of the reach of Herod's mighty arm. He dare not do anything in Egypt because he doesn't want to upset the rulers down there. So they're safe in Egypt. But not only that, Probably the most important reason is that there's already an element of obedience here. You see, the only way to overcome fear was to totally trust God's love and mercy. And so in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, we are told that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Have you ever asked God, or have you ever heard God ask you to step out on faith? To do something that goes against your grain, to do something that maybe might make you feel a little uncomfortable with. But God calls us all to do something. But sometimes our fears hold us back from being obedient to Him. Maybe it was giving a substantial financial gift to somebody or to the church or to an organization because you were afraid that you might have enough money later 
for your own things. Or, or maybe it's that you were afraid to serve somebody in a, in a specific need because they may not appreciate it and you wouldn't get the recognition. Maybe you might have a fear about talking with one of your family members or a coworker or a neighbor about your relationship with Jesus because they might make fun of you. Or they might not want to talk with you anymore. Fear drives us to do things that we ought not do. But God has gone ahead and He has prepared and planned for all of these things, not only for Jesus, but for us. He's already gone ahead. We just need to be obedient. So whatever the reason, don't you think it's time that we trusted God? Then when He asks us to do something, we just do it. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew then to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city named Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You see how God is, is preparing all these things, all the movements, all the action. You're going to marry Mary. I know she's expecting a baby. It's nobody else's. It's mine, but take her anyway. Make her your wife. You can go on to Bethlehem. Don't worry about it. I've got others here. You're not all your own. We'll take care of things. Matter of fact, let me finance your trip to Egypt. Enjoy your honeymoon. We're going to take care of things there. And then you come back. You see how God is planning all these things. And he's spoken about it from ages past in the Scripture through the prophets. Joseph, you're not alone. Don't forget Emmanuel. And so the lesson we see is that even when Joseph was afraid, he wasn't alone. God stepped in to give him the needed guidance by speaking to him through the dreams and telling him what he needs to do next. And now Joseph, like his ancestral father Abraham is wandering into Egypt, into a land that he knows nothing about, and God is going to provide for him. Joseph again discovers that he's not alone. Even when he and his family are, a vicious, are trying to get away from this vicious attack from King Herod, God always provides. You see, God had a plan to save the world, and he was not going to let anything get in the way of that plan. Not even Herod the Great. And so he, he sends them to Egypt. He provided for their trip. I mean, these wise men that came with these, these wonderful gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they were valuable. And they could use those to finance their trip and to, to take care of their needs while they're in Egypt until it's time to come back to Israel. God took care of all the details. Joseph, you just need to follow me. And God takes care of all the details in your life and in mine. We just need to understand we're not alone. He provides. 
You see, God provided not only the resources to take the chip, He provided a place for them to live there that was a community that was filled with other Jewish people. There in the northern section of Egypt along the Mediterranean coast, there were communities where thousands of Jewish people lived so they could move right in and feel comfortable, just kind of blend right in. There were synagogues in every community there in Egypt. And not only that, God provided them with fellowship and community when they got there. I heard about a couple who were just married, and, and, and the groom, he had done all this research, and he had saved, and he was getting ready to just to bless this marriage and his wife with this wonderful honeymoon. And so they, he'd, he'd gotten exactly what he wanted, and he spared no penny. This was going to be a great honeymoon. And by the time they got to their location at the hotel that night, they walked into the dark, and they were just so tired, they were led into the room, and it really wasn't quite what he had expected. I mean, it's just this tiny little room. The bathroom was even smaller, and, and, and there was no window looking out to the ocean. And, and you have to also understand that there was no bed. All that money he had spent, he'd prayed for, and he'd prepared, and, and all they have is this, this couch. Well, it was a sofa sleeper, so it pulled out, and they could sleep on it. But they were so tired that night, they just said, let's just sleep, and he was going to take care of things in the morning. Well, when morning came around, he rose up and he headed down to the desk and he asked to see the manager and he talked with that manager and he told him, I don't understand why I did not get what I paid for. The, the agent told me here that I would have this and this and this and he explained all the details and the manager listened to him patiently and finally said, well, did you open the door in the room? He says, you mean the closet? The manager paused and he said, yeah, did you open that closet door? Well, no. Why don't you go do that? And then tell me what you think. So he went back to the room, and he opened up the closet door, which wasn't a closet. It opened itself up into a big suite with the biggest bed he'd ever seen with chocolate on the pillows and roses and other flowers draped around everything, and with a wall that was a window exposing itself to the ocean out behind behind them. What a beautiful scenery. And, and it, was, it was an enormous area, and the luxuries were all there. But all it took was him to open that door. And I want you to understand this. Sometimes God puts a door in your life that you don't know what lies beyond it. And he simply says, don't be afraid you're not alone. Open the door. And when we are obedient, we discover the blessings that God has already prepared in advance for us. It's just up to us to follow through and do as he says. You know, I, Max Lucado, he wrote an imaginary prayer that he viewed that Joseph may have prayed the night that he's standing outside the stable, passing back and forth, waiting for the baby to be born. And these are the words that he, he pens for this prayer. He said, this isn't the way I planned it, God. It's not, not at all. My child being born in a stable, this isn't the way I thought it could be. A cave with sheep and donkeys, hay and straw, this isn't at all what I had imagined. I imagined family, 
grandmothers, neighbors, friends standing by my side. I I imagine the house erupting with the first cry of an infant, slaps on the back and, and loud jubilation. That's how I thought it would be. It just doesn't seem right. What kind of husband am I, God? I provide no midwife to aid my wife, no bed to rest her back. Her pillow is a blanket off of a donkey. My house for her is a shed of hay and straw. The smell is bad. The animals are loud. Did I miss something, God? This isn't the way I wanted it to be. This is not the way I wanted my son. Oh, my. I did it again. I did it again, didn't I, Father? I I don't mean to do that. It's just that I forgot. He's not my son. He's yours. The child is yours, the plan is yours, the idea is yours. And forgive me for asking, but is this how God enters the world? The big question for us is this. When things look bad and I feel all alone, do I trust God? You see... God's plan may not make any sense to you at all. It may not be the way that you would do things, but it's His plan. And He promises us that He will go before us and prepare the way if we will just follow. Sometimes following is not always the easy way because you may have to pick up your cross and carry Him. But trust me, you won't be alone. Remember, Emmanuel, God with us. He's right there with us. The words that Moses spoke to Joshua are just kind of as relevant today to us as they were to Joshua when Moses spoke them. He said this in Deuteronomy 31.8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are never alone. You may think you are, but He is right there. All you have to do is listen. And He'll speak in the stillness of night, in a gentle whisper. He may not be found in the earthquake or the fire or or the thunder, but He's there. And we aren't home alone. If you would stand with me as we close out. If you have a decision you need to make, man, what a... What a wonderful time to do that. To give your life to Christ. To realize the plan that He set forth in place before the creation of this world that took place that night in the cool of the evening there in Bethlehem. A child was born to save you. So you're never alone. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, May we recognize all the goodness of this Christmas season, even in the midst of 
the isolation that's taking place. Father, quarantine has nothing on us because you're right there in our midst with your spirit dwelling within us. Father, may we recognize the goodness, the gift that you've given us in Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.